So the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs are one and one. And uh, I bring that up, of course, because uh, all the faithful followers are very excited about this. And, and uh, they already knew that. The fickle fans just found out. And um, you know, the faithful followers of the Toronto Maple Leafs, they're, they're every year around playoff time, they just get in a whole zone. And they're like, oh man, it has been since 67. And, and then they just really look on disdain with the people who went out and bought their jerseys you know, last Thursday or whenever it was when they won game one, game one and that was the time to buy the jersey. And the, the faithful followers, ah, the fickle fans. You don't even understand. In fact, the faithful followers of the Toronto Maple Leafs are so nervous right now where this illustration is going because they want to make sure that what I say next is orthodox to the franchise. Um, and the only reason that I actually know that they're one and one is because I Googled it a couple hours ago. Because I'm a fickle fan. Uh, I, I only knew they won the first game because I was watching the Jays blow a five-run lead in Boston. And on the man-operated scoreboard, they had the Leafs score. So I knew that the Leafs won. And I know that for a, a faithful follower of the Toronto Maple Leafs, what I'm saying right now is pathetic. Some of you are considering worshipping in other churches, <laughs> questioning the orthodoxy of your pastor. You know, but I say all this because... Um, you know, we know the difference between faithful following and, and the, the fickle, fickle fandom. And, uh, you know, and, and, and as, you know, as Leafs fans, you can't really judge me for watching the Jays lose because we both know what it's like to watch people blow leads, right? We both are gluttons for punishment. We both understand what it's like to extend grace, to just love someone apart from their performance, which is the definition of grace. We both get this, right? And... Um, at the end of the day, it's interesting when the, the world of, of, of sports, it's like we're all cheering for sweaty shirts, you know, in the end of the day. Uh, get rid of that guy. Bring this guy. That guy's a bum. We love that guy. In fact, it's a rebuilding season. Get rid of all of them so that at the end, we're cheering for that, that sweaty shirt one. Whoever's wearing it, is, as long as the sweaty shirt wins. This is the, this is the world of, of sports. And... Uh, as we turn to our text for this morning, which is Mark chapter 11, this is perhaps the greatest historical showcase of faithful following, turning, appearing, uh, uh, you know, the appearance of faithful following turning into fickle fandom. And it is the familiar passage where um, these fickle fans posing as faithful followers are waving branches in celebration of Jesus. And of course, we know that five short days later, the same people are demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go to the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, You'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will return it here. And so they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who were standing there said, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and Jesus sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And 
Those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something to eat on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. And so they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the doves. And Jesus would not allow anyone to carry any wares through the temple. And he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening came, he went out of the city. This is God's word. Now, this parade was a culturally recognized welcome uh, of when a king entered the city. This is what it would look like. But Jesus, in a way that only Jesus can, he modifies the script. He modifies the very familiar script of the king riding in on his war horse. And instead of riding in on this majestic, Messiah-worthy war horse, Jesus chooses a small, humble colt. And Jesus' entrance here and how he does this, it actually shines quite a large spotlight on the age-old mismatch between what we think we need and what God actually provides. And every first-century reader who would have read this, every first-century listener who would have heard this, they would have wanted to envision Jesus on Black Stallion, not Little Sebastian. And this historical account reveals one of the fundamental reasons that we either reject God or we struggle to, uh, and, and we wander from God, and it's because we are very, very comfortable with Jesus who fits neatly into what we already think and what we already believe and what we already want. And we're very uncomfortable with a Jesus who doesn't bow to what we think, confronts what we believe, and reorders what we want. What we want. And so in the short run, it seems as though everything God is doing is always confusing. It's like the way that Jesus is coming in as a king into Jerusalem is confusing But the good news of the gospel is that in the long run, everything that God does is majestic. It's precisely what we need. This this whole passage that we read was prophesied centuries earlier by Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and bringing salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so through through the centuries, for millennia, God's been promising to move in great saving grace. But on the surface, it's never the way that we expect And so Jesus presents himself in the way that he comes into the city with the procession of a king, but he's unlike every other king. And what we see is majesty and meekness. There's this incredible convergence of majesty and meekness in Jesus. And if you are new to the scriptures, if you're exploring 
thoughtfully Christian faith this morning and you're here uh, considering the God of Christianity, one of the things that we talk about a lot here at Redeemer is how Jesus is a king who is unlike every other king. That as you work through the Gospels, what you find is he's not a king that's taking up power. He's a king that's actually come to lay down his power. He's not a king that's come to establish his kingdom by shedding blood. He's a king who actually comes and establishes his kingdom by shedding his own blood. And here at Redeemer, as we walk through the Gospels, those, these are strong themes about Jesus that we talk about often, that we recognize there's this great convergence of majesty and meekness. Um, two of the metaphors throughout the Gospels that talk about this majesty and meekness are that Jesus is described as both a lion and a lamb. So if you read the book of Revelation, uh, John is told to look for a lion, and when he looks for the lion, he sees a lamb. There's this convergence of these two things. You continually see it through um, the New Testament, that he's this, uh, uh, that Jesus uh, is, is this loving uh, king who is unlike any other. In 1738, there is a, a theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote a sermon about this convergence that kind of describes a little bit this Jesus we see coming in on a, on a donkey. And it's a sermon that he wrote called The Excellency of Christ. And so I want to borrow some of Jonathan Edwards' language as we think about how Jesus came into Jerusalem. Infinite majesty and boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty and ultimate submission. All at once. It's amazing because there is total sufficiency in God the Son, yet he's totally trusting in God the Father, and he's totally reliant in God, on God the Spirit as he's headed to the cross. And so in this passage, you see these two things that in the beginning they seem really unconnected and they end, up, they end up being totally connected. You've got Jesus cursing a fruit tree and then Jesus cleans out the temples, temple. You get these, these two things, they seem totally unrelated, but then they are absolutely related um, because when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's actually this big steaming ball of foreshadowing for when he goes in to clear out the temple. Now... The fig trees in the Middle East, they produce two kinds of fruit. They produce the figs, but there's also a point in which before the fig comes, these little, these little buds form, these little nodules form, and you can eat them too. You can eat them before the fig. So when Jesus sees from afar the flowered fig tree, he's assuming that there's these buds that he's going to be able to go and eat, which was common travelers would do as they were traveling. But if a tree was flowered and there were no buds, then what that meant that was it was, it was diseased, or it was dying. And so what we find here is something that has the appearance of growth, but it's producing no fruit, and that's a sign of decay. So the tree is not doing its job. And so the tree is a perfect metaphor for the religious leaders who are not doing their job. The temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. And Jesus is appropriately angry because there's no prayer. Uh, it's full of religious activity in the name of God, but nobody's being led to the forgiving grace of God. That's the priest's job. That's what the outer courts were for. So Jesus starts flipping the tables. And when Jesus starts flipping tables, it's not a violent outbreak of passion because that's a sign of weakness. People who have violent outbreaks of anger, uncontrolled outbreaks of anger, that's not strength, that's weakness. And this is an act of judgment against religious fruitlessness. 
When Jesus curses the fig tree, he's judging fruitlessness. Looks good on the outside, diseased on the inside, there's no fruit. When Jesus clears the temple, he's judging religious fruitlessness. Looks good on the outside, looks religious on the outside, diseased on the inside, no fruit. Imagine thousands of people hustling around in a busy marketplace. Imagine the trading room floor of the stock exchange with all the yelling and the shouting that's going on as the, as the stocks are being traded. Just imagine that chaos and now throw livestock into that image. Okay, that's what's happening here. Historian uh, Josephus recorded in his Roman Antiquities that there was, in one of the weeks of the Passover, during the whole week, 255,000 lambs were recorded as being bought, sold, and sacrificed in that court. That's an insane number that that historian records. There's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of bleeding, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of mess. Nobody's finding God in that environment. And Jesus starts flipping tables. Now, this is a space, of course, the outer court. This is what's so important for us to understand, is that the outer court, where all this was happening, this is where the priests were supposed to welcome people from every nation. That was where every nation was only allowed in the outer court. So the outer court was for every nation to come. So that through prayer and reflection and confession, they would find God. Jesus called it a den of thieves because nobody from any nation could come in that environment and find God. That's why in verse 18, Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the point. All of Israel's history is a showcasing of, of how the priests were not doing their job in the same way that that fruit tree was not doing its job in inviting the other nations to come and to find the saving grace of God. And the text says that the people were astonished by the teaching of Jesus and the religious leaders wanted to destroy Jesus. But why? What about that statement would make somebody astonished at Jesus and some angry at Jesus? Well, for the religious minds, they believed that the Messiah would come and purge their land of unclean foreigners. Here's Jesus coming and advocating for the salvation of the unclean foreigners. He's doing the very opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees are actually up to at that time. Their hearts are not breaking for the nations. They're actually a barrier to the nations. The outer court was specifically designed for the salvation of the nations. And they're not even close. And Jesus starts flipping tables. Now, When we find texts like this, it is easy for us, if we have had the misfortune of being in a church or having a a church uh, experience that was legalistic, it's easy for us to read this text and go, yeah, Jesus, stick it to the institution, stick it to the religious legalists. They're so fruitless. And that is true. But it's very hard for us who've had that misfortune to see how sometimes our hearts can swing into the other ditch of not legalism, but lawlessness, which is just a different way of being fruitless. And in other words, if we've come from a background where there's so much religious activity that's devoid of the oxygen of grace, and you have a tremendous amount of guilt about coming to gather to worship, or or reading the scriptures in your home with your children, or, being, or, or seeing the spiritual discipline of prayer, or these kinds of things as a gift. 
If those things were somehow distorted so they weren't gifts, but they were somehow become objects of earning, and sometimes it's easy to look at texts like this and reject that and not see how when we get out of a dysfunctional environment like that, that we can swing and say, oh, it feels so good to be free of that legalism. Now I will, I will just worship Jesus whenever it suits my schedule, and that will just be a lot better for me and my soul and my soul care. And, you know, and I don't want my children to think that Christianity is legalism, so we're not going to read the scriptures in our home. I understand. I mean, I'm being facetious about this. But we can swing into this other ditch, having been so hurt from uh, legalism uh, into lawlessness, which is just a different form of fruitlessness, not producing in our hearts and our lives what it is that by the Spirit God desires to produce. And so Jesus starts flipping these tables because this is nothing like what the house of God is supposed to be like. And it's not about outrageous prophets. They're not, it's, not, it's, not just they're, uh, it's not just that Jesus is outraged. He didn't go in the temple and say, what's the exchange on the, that's outrageous! That's not what this is. I mean, if you've ever traveled to another country and seen that, you know, coming into the country, for example, years ago, Susan and I went to Cuba, and when you go to the sovereign nation of Cuba, they do their thing there. So you show up to Cuba, and they're like, welcome to Cuba. Here's what, the, here's what we have decided your currency's worth while you're here. And P.S., you better spend all your money while you're here, because when you're gone, it's paper. Right? You're, that, that, that Cuban currency, is you're not going to come back to Canada and go to the bank and get that exchanged. Uh, years ago, they had two, two forms of currency, actually, when we were there. And so you'd go and see, and you'd look at that exchange rate. That's outrageous. And then but when you left, if you had any money left and you had to change it back into Canadian, guess what? You'd lose a game. You want to flip tables? That's not what this is. Historian scholar Jacob Neusner, he's a Jewish scholar, he says this. Everybody expected the Messiah to attack Rome. Nobody expected the Messiah to attack the sacrificial system. And that is what is happening here. You see, that one time a year in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the holies of holies and he would, on behalf of the people, make a sacrifice. But Jesus cleared out every table. Jesus chased away the sacrifice. So how how are the nations supposed to find God without the sacrifice? They're looking at it. And so when the dust settled... And the coins stopped rolling, and all the lambs were gone, one lamb remained. At a time of year when the high priest was supposed to be looking for the sacrificial lamb, the high priest was plotting the death of Jesus, who ironically and provisionally is the perfect sacrificial lamb. And so, interestingly, that after, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus... You know that the religious leaders, they set those tables back up for 70 more years after the resurrection. They, set, they just kept on going. No, he was not the Messiah. They set those tables up for 70 more years, 30, or sorry, 37 more years until 70 AD, my, my apologies, uh, when Rome destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And why did they do that? Because the religious mind cannot accept that everything God requires from you, he came and provided for you in Jesus, in grace which he did, which is the message of the gospel. 
And so, of course, there's two ways we can run from this grace. We can set, we can set the tables back up in our lives, and metaphorically speaking, and we can, rel- we can you know, live religious lives trying to earn from God by impressing him with our fruit, impressing him with our spiritual disciplines. You know? That's one way that we can run away from grace. We can pride ourselves in how we think we are somehow walking out and applying our Christian faith better than the people sitting next to us. That's one way to run away from grace as a legalist. But the other way that we can run away from grace is not by setting up, back, setting up the religious tables, but by living with a casual indifference to Christ the King. So instead of trying to impress God with our fruit, we can just live with casual indifference to Christ the King and not care if our lives are producing any fruit. And that's, an, that's equally fruitless. That's another way that we can, we can run away from God's grace. But either way, whether we're trusting in our own religious observance or we're living with a casual indifference... Uh, they're both saying, I don't need Jesus. In the end, they're both fruitless. But here's the good news of the gospel. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come to cleanse the temple. Jesus came to replace the temple. Jesus didn't come to straighten out the sacrificial system. Jesus came to replace the sacrificial system. And he did that as the high priest. He's the great high priest. He's the true temple. He's the ultimate sacrifice. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 10 look back on all of this um, that I'm teaching about today. They look back on the implications of this whole passage and, and Hebrews chapter 4 and 10 interpret them. The Hebrew writer says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever's entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. See, the priest stood daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice that never took away our sins. But when Christ, the high priest, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice, he sat down because he took away our sins. It is finished. And so, united to Christ, this ultimate sacrifice by grace and through faith, we're accepted and we're loved as children of God. And as those who've been saved by God's grace, we desire to live and lead fruitful lives empowered by his grace. Now, here's the, here's the other implications of the goodness of the gospel. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus cleansed the temple. These, this text is about judgment on fruitlessness. The good news of the gospel, the implications of it, Galatians 5 teaches us, is that there is a fruitfulness that is being created in you, that the Spirit does. The fruitfulness that God requires, he is creating in you. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your efforts. So we need to walk away from the sermon and, and we must apply it, but not in the way that the religious mind thinks. So as I close this morning, let's look carefully at this application. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these there is no law, right? This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit that Jesus is looking for. This is the fruit that his Spirit is producing in you. The The fruitfulness he requires, he will create and he provides. Now, if then we say, oh, wow good news. I guess I'll just sit back and do nothing then and everything will be fine. 
I guess I'll sit back and do nothing and my children will be fine. Well, no. You can't produce that fruit. So I'm not going to burden you by saying, okay, so everybody clear that Jesus judges, okay, did you get the cursed fig tree? Get the metaphor, get the clearing of the temple, see how Jesus is about fruitfulness, get out there and try harder this week, you fruitless fig tree. Okay, no, that's, that would not be a good application of this text. But after, after that verse in verse uh, 22 of Galatians chapter 5, where it says, the fruit of the Spirit are these, the Apostle Paul, got, Paul goes on to say, and the works of the flesh are these, and you've got to put these off. See, the Apostle Paul doesn't say create the fruit of the Spirit any more than you, you go outside, you know, it's springtime is coming, right? And then if any of you kids, you know, go to, go to an apple orchard right now, there's no apples, but you're not going to hear the trees like, ah! oh, there's an apple, Woo! this is such hard work. So like, I can't end the sermon in such a way that all of the Christians leave this week like, ah! trying to, you can't do it. And the, the Apostle Paul knows you can't do it, but here's what you can do. Here's what you and I are called to do, and that's to put off the works of the flesh, to put off the sin, to put off the things that keep us from loving our neighbors, from loving one another, from, from living the lives um, that grace fr- frees us to live. And so, by God's grace, may he continue his healing work in all of us so that we're not like the fig tree, masquerading around, claiming the grace of Christ on the outside and having no love of Christ on the inside. By God's grace, may this church not become like that first century temple, full of religious activity on the outside, but having no love for one another or love for our neighbors on the inside. The truth is, of course, that we all have times in our lives, we have areas in our hearts that are fruitless, more fruitless than we would care to admit. But the good news of the gospel is for that there is grace. Not only the forgiving grace that has forgiven your sin and covers all your sin, but also renewing grace that's teaching you and I to hate our sin. And so may we gather to worship and go out to live lives of love and service, not because those things are earning the blessing of God. We already have the blessing of God. But because the life of worship and love and service, that is the inevitable fruit that is produced by the heart that is gripped by the grace of God. Amen.